When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. and thank you for tuning in to episode 53 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and our guest today is one of the hottest actors in Hollywood. Objectively, when you look at his body of work, and yes, physically, according to just about every straight woman and gay man I've encountered. His name is Tom Hiddleston, and he's a 35-year-old Brit who, like Benedict Cumberbatch and Eddie Redmayne, among others, is an Oxbridge graduate who has distinguished himself on the stage, come to the movies to do a blockbuster or two, and then turned in awards-worthy work on both the big and small screens. Unlike, say, Cumberbatch or Redmayne, he's yet to receive an Oscar or Emmy nomination. But his portrayal this year of iconic country singer Hank Williams in the film I Saw the Light and of Jonathan Pine in the limited TV series The Night Manager are certainly worthy of that sort of recognition. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about how he came to know Kenneth Branagh, whose confidence in him resulted in breakthrough gigs across the media, including and especially the part of Thor in the Marvel Universe films Thor and The Avengers. His experience on Oscar-nominated films like Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris and Steven Spielberg's War Horse. The massive, physical, emotional, and intellectual work he did for both I Saw the Light and The Night Manager. And yes, those pesky rumors that he might be the next James Bond. Take an hour or so to get to know Tom Hiddleston. He's going to be around for a long time. So let's go to that conversation. Tom, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. Really appreciate it. To begin with, we always just like to ask where you were born and raised and what your parents did for a living. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you, first of all, for having me what? here. And I'm never asked that question. Really? So, yeah, I was born in London in 1981 in Westminster in the Middlesex Hospital in central London. <laughs> and my father had a degree from what was then Newcastle University in Durham. He has a PhD in physical chemistry, mm-hmm. and he did lots of different jobs in business. He was a managing director of a company in Oxford which dealt with intellectual property of biotech, scientific hardware, new inventions, essentially. Mm-hmm. He was essentially in business, but his line of work always had a scientific bent mm-hmm. or inclination. And my mother, Diana, trained as a stage manager in the opera, and she was a stage manager at the Coliseum with the English National Opera when she was young. And then she met my dad and was a mum for a bit. And then she kept going in as an administrator in the arts. She worked at Garsington Opera in Oxfordshire and the Oxford Playhouse in the theatre there. So she's always had a... She's always been a great supporter of, of the arts. And were you very exposed to the arts, whether film or TV or theatre, as a kid? And also, was there an experience, you know, viewing one of those things, one of those media that really made a big impact on you? I think like every kid, I loved movies. And the movies I loved were, like any child of the 80s, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, <laughs> Ghostbusters, <Right. laughs> um, Bond movies, Star Wars, all the things that all kids loved back then, The Goonies. And I think it evolved beyond that when I was probably... Well, my my mum's parents, my maternal grandparents, did a beautiful thing every Christmas. They used to gather their entire clan. So that was us and my mum's sister and their kids, my cousins, my uncle and their, his kids. And so there were about 25 of us, and we they would book a, a kind of a row in the theatre to go and That's see great. a big show. And so I think I remember going to see Peter Pan at the National Theatre, The Wind in the Willows. We went to see the very 
the original cast of Chicago in London's West End. It was a lovely thing. It was a lovely family thing. Yeah, yeah. But I think things changed for me when I was about 14 or 15. I started going to the theatre on my own. I started going to see different kinds of films. I started not just going to see the the big blockbusters, but also the, you know, I found my local arts picture house and I started to become aware of foreign cinema and independent film. And, and then was had a sort of insatiable curiosity. I ever wanted to see everything. I, I had a very tattered membership card to my <laughs> local video store. <laughs> Looking back on it, I realised they were sort of director's seasons, you know, for myself. And so a couple of things I can probably mention here. I remember going to see a production of John Gabriel Borkman by Ibsen, Ibsen directed by Richard Eyre at the National Theatre with Paul Schofield, Vanessa Redgrave and Eileen Atkins. Wow. And it was the last time Schofield performed live on stage in England, anywhere. And he was, you know, he, he was the last truly great actor of a, of a particular generation. You know, you listen to Ian McKellen and Derek Jacobi and talk about him and Anthony Hopkins. And it was amazing. You know, Borkman is this extraordinary character written by Ibsen, someone who, a towering figure of authority who is crippled by demons and, and a terrible sort of domestic pain. It's about a, a family breaking apart, so many secrets from the past rearing up and swallowing these people whole. And I remember that experience being very profound because for the first time I saw an audience of strangers completely united. And I thought to myself, that's the power of drama, is that, is that you have this audience of strangers who arrived at 7.30 for Curtain Up and had a cocktail, <laughs> and then three hours later we're all crying together at the same thing. And I had very uh, lots of similar experiences in the cinema. My mother took me to see Life is Beautiful with uh, Roberto Benigni, I, and I, was, I had my own prejudices as a, as a teenager about foreign cinema, and I couldn't be bothered to read subtitles and all of these, <laughs> you know... Things that a young kid would say. And then, you know, I had a completely a, a transporting experience. Same is true of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest oh, yeah. with Nicholson. I remember watching that film and thinking, my God, you know, because I'd become a Nicholson fan because I loved Tim Burton's Batman. Mm -hmm. So I loved his Joker. And then I started to dig around in Jack Nicholson and I discovered his all of his other work. When along the line did you first yourself try acting, even if it was just horsing around or whatever. I'm talking pre-university because I know when you got there it was serious. Yeah. But, you know, what was your own first experience getting into this? You know, I always, I mean, I was in school plays as a very young child. We did a school production of The Wind in the Willows when I was about six or seven. And I played Toad. <laughs> <laughs> Which is arguably the most mischievous part. Right. Or the most fun. And I remember I had to sing a song about how much fun it was to drive in a vintage car. <laughs> and there's, there's video evidence of this somewhere. <laughs> that, that will go viral. <laughs> in, in, in my, in my mum's attic. Yes. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I always enjoyed it. But of course, when you're six or seven, you're just like every other kid. You're just in the, in the school play. There was a turning point, I think, when I was about 13. I did something. At school, they used to have a thing called... A balloon debate and the conceit is that a hot air balloon is traveling across the Atlantic and we're running out of gas and so the balloon is going down and you have to give a speech about why you should stay in the balloon <laughs> as a sort of just a debating exercise and you get to choose who you want to be you could be the man who invented the wheel Winston Churchill Picasso mm -hmm. <laughs> you could be you know anyone you could think of Bugs Bunny, you know, it was it was a, a creative idea, and I, with a friend of mine, we did a, a riff up. We were two advertising agents, and basically, it was an excuse for me to run through impersonations of all the popular television commercials <laughs> at the time, and we won this balloon debate by a landslide. <laughs> That's great. Um, and the great discovery I made was the joy of making people laugh, honestly. And then the head of drama came up to me and said, do you want to be in the school play? And I, and I played the lead in a Gilbert Sullivan musical. And then from that point, that was when I was like, wow, this is really fun. And then through my teens, what's interesting about acting, I can only consider this retrospectively, is that I think as a teenager, you're starting to develop more sophisticated feelings about yourself and the world but you don't have the articulacy to express those mm -hmm. feelings. And, and doing school plays 
gave me freedom of expression. To play articulate characters was quite freeing. I remember I was in Tom Stoppard's Arcadia when I was about 17, playing an academic in his mid-40s, which was originally played by Bill Nye, I think, in the National Theatre production. But to have these great speeches of Stoppardian dialogue as a 17-year-old felt incredibly empowering, I think. And, lest we forget, enormous fun. Right, right. So now, correct me if any of this is wrong, but you go off to Cambridge. During your second year, you're seen in a production of Streetcar. During my first year, actually. First year. First year, yeah. Seen in a production of Streetcar Named Desire, signed by an agent. And at that point, I think a lot of people would have checked out and gone and seen what they could do out in the open market. But you finished up and went off to RADA and finished that as well. Yeah. So were those tough decisions to put off the professional opportunities? Or, I mean, I guess while you were at RADA, maybe during vacations or whatever, you were able to dabble, but you... No dabbling. No dabbling. No dabbling, yeah. Well, RADA insists that the training is complete and that actually it's very dangerous to to jump off halfway through. It's a course that has a completeness to it. I didn't let you finish your question, but I think I know where it's going. Yeah, it, just like, was yeah. that a tough call to stick with the academic commitments rather than... Because, you know, those opportunities, your agent could mm. very well have moved on during that time. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it was... I was very lucky in that the agent who, who saw me in this production of Streetcar... It is hilarious. I was 19, playing Carl Malden's part, <laughs> you know, playing Mitch, looking back on it. But she had the, her, her most high-profile clients at that time were Emma Thompson, uh, Tilda Swinton, Hugh Laurie, and Stephen Fry, <laughs> uh, all of whom were educated at Cambridge mm-hmm. and all of whom she had discovered at Cambridge. Wow. So she understood how unique that opportunity was, the, you know, because I had worked so hard to just get into Cambridge. It's, there are huge academic tests that before you get in and I got there so she said you know you've just got there you can't leave you should finish because you'll never ever in your life have a time like this again and she was right I can see that now so I stayed at Cambridge I dabbled while I was at Cambridge ah, so gotcha. I so I did some work I did a, a small part in Conspiracy for yes. HBO directed by Frank Pearson the great Frank sure. Pearson who wrote Dog Day Afternoon and Cool Hand Luke and then I did the Gathering Storm with Albert Finney and Vanessa Redgrave. Churchill's son. Churchill's son, yeah, about Churchill's life in the 30s. And it was actually during that time that I remember asking Finney and Vanessa what I should do, which is that, you know, I, I could see that all the actors I respected and admired that came from the UK had all been through this formal training, whether it was actors of Albert Finney's generation, Peter O'Toole, Alan Bates, Mm -hmm. himself, John Hurt, Mm -hmm. Anthony Hopkins, or people below that like Ray Fiennes and Kenneth Branagh and Alan Rickman and Imelda Staunton, people had trained. And I worried that if I didn't do that, there would be something, some... Something I would would always feel I had missed out on. Mm -hmm. And yet there were so many actors who just enjoyed the momentum or taken advantage of it. And um, I spoke to both of them, and Albert Finney said to me, he said, look, if you train, you'll be an actor for the rest of your life. And it's a long life, or it can be. And he, he talked to me about his experience of repertory theatre, which used to be the way through, which is that you would join a repertory company and he would play 26 different roles in the space of one year. And you got so dexterous and so flexible and so versatile and it was such a good practice it was almost like an apprenticeship and that because the repertory tradition has receded and almost sort of died away mm-hmm. he said you know go to go to drama school and enjoy your freedom to fail because it's it, because out there in the business there is no <laughs> there is no freedom no. Or, or there's some but you know it's more ruthless I think and, and so I applied to RADA I got in and I stayed the course and I enjoyed it I mean RADA's RADA's not easy it, there, it's there are 30 students per year and initially you sort of everyone's very everyone is different there are some people who are naturally very funny some people who are naturally very physically gifted some people who are naturally very intelligent or musical and everyone's sort of different 
shapes and sizes and I enjoyed being in the mix. Some of those people are still my best friends. Mm. But there's a time at drama school where everybody knows what you can do and they want to see how you get on with what you can't do. Mm -hmm. And so you spend weeks and weeks and months and months working on things that do not come naturally. So the people who are tone deaf, they make sing. The people who are terrible at stage fighting, they put a sword in their hand. What was your vulnerability at that point? Uh, singing. Really? Yeah, if I'm honest. Because it's very, it's a very naked thing to do. And I hadn't come, I didn't have a musical theatre background. And there were some people who had this thing. They were just naturally gifted that way. And they made me play old men. And they made me play women. They made me play the sort of parts I would never get cast as, I think, now. But they push you to the extremes of your range. So that in facing those challenges, you learn something about yourself and about your craft and about the, you know, the tools that you have in your toolkit, I guess. Challenging though they were, some of those experiences were very informative because you make discoveries in the moment, you know, and you'll do everything from Brian Friel to Sam Shepard to Arthur Miller to Tennessee Williams to Shakespeare to Mike Lee. You explore the full range of dramatic and comedic material. You do clowning, you do improv. It's a comprehensive training. And I came out the other side still completely kind of green and released into the business, but with a sense that I had a background in things. That when So when challenges actually have presented themselves, I've always had my training to lean on and be like, actually, I have had a similar experience of this before, mm-hmm. and I can see a way through. So I believe you came out of Rada in 05, yeah. and by 07, it seems like if there was really like a turning point or something that opened up a lot of other opportunities, it was the very acclaimed performance that you gave in the 2007 Michael Granage production of Othello and really got a lot of accolades for that and I think put you on a lot of people's radar that you might not have been on before. And I just wonder, it seems like one of those people might have been Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, well, it was... Uh, um, so Othello was a very happy time and it was an extraordinary production, chiefly because... I think Chiwetel Ejiofor was definitive in the title role. But it felt like everybody in the cast gave definitive performances of those parts. Ewan McGregor was magnificent as Iago. Kelly Riley was Desdemona. Michelle Fairley was Amelia. Edward Bennett was Rodrigo. There was the whole company kind of just gelled together in a perfect way. And rarely for a theatre production, we all felt very ready by the time of our dress rehearsal. And the last thing required was an audience to complete the experience. (laughs) So for our dress rehearsal, Michael Grandage decided to invite... He opened the house to third-year graduate students from drama school, from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, from Lambda, from Drama Centre, from Central. And then he said, ''Would you mind if I asked a friend of mine to come along too?'' Uh, his name's Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we were like, uh, um, yes, sure, uh, why don't you do that? <laughs> no pressure. Oh um, because they had a relationship, because Michael had directed Ken in Richard III at the Sheffield Crucible a number of years before. So Ken, who had played Iago himself with Lawrence Fishburne, came to see it and enjoyed it very much. And the next day, I got a call saying that... Kenneth Branagh would like to cast me as Christian in a radio production of Cyrano de Bergerac in which he was playing Cyrano. And then I spent, to cut a long story short, I spent an entire year with him. Tom Stoppard had also seen Othello and had done an adaptation of Ivanov, Chekhov's Ivanov, which Michael was going to direct and Ken was going to star in. And they, all three of them wanted me to play the... Um, slightly self-righteous young Dr. Lvov in that play. So I did that. And at the same time, I was sent the script for Wallander, the BBC adaptation of Henning Mankel's Swedish thrillers. And I played Ken's sidekick in that. So, <laughs> so I spent... You, you had a little uh, roadshow yeah, with Yeah, yeah I did, I did. <laughs> it was... Um, I never forget Ken at the costume fitting saying... 
I'm going to call this my Hiddleston year. Um, and I just thought to myself, okay, don't fuck it up. No. <laughs> and what was the, I mean, when you get to spend a year with Kenneth Branagh, what's the takeaway? What's the sort of lasting impact of that? I was just in awe of his energy and diligence. I mean, to do one job with him, I probably would have seen that. But to spend a year with him, he is tireless in his passion and his investigation of the work itself and that is the only thing that matters to him I found him incredibly wise as a man just huge perspective on life on the business on what it means to be an actor such experience he's seen the highs and he's seen the lows and he still has an extraordinary passion for it and leadership his he was exemplary he just the way he led the crew of Wallander through that shoot which was very quick and also just his investigation of the material itself you know you turn up in the morning very early six o'clock seven o'clock for rehearsal he was intensely rigorous about resisting cliche in the police thriller I remember his one of his sort of most persistent ideas was that there are so many television thrillers which involve police officers and they have a detachment about how much violence and death they see and his reading of Henning Mankell's material was it had this, this immense sensitivity and compassion in it. His interpretation of Wallander was that a man's daily encounter with death should have a spiritual cost. As police officers turning up to the scene of a crime, just because it was routine shouldn't make it easy. And I thought that was just an extraordinary thing to bring to the table. I'd never seen anyone so rebellious with the writing because I had always been taught that the written word had a prevailing authority. And on set, you know, working with Ken, he showed me that sometimes, you know, screenwriting is prescriptive in, in a way that can be unhelpful because the writer is often not present. And so there's a ways of respecting the writing, but also making it fresh and vital and spontaneous in the moment, which I'd never seen before. And he just knows how to trust his instinct. He knows how to be prepared. There are so many variables in the creative process. And as an actor, you can help limit those variables by being intensely prepared and bringing your best every day. So to be around that for an entire year, you know, during the course of Ivanov, we did around 70, 75 performances. And he never gave the same performance. It was always... I mean, I'm probably getting into nuts and bolts of acting process here, oh, which may or may not be. Yeah. Right. But there is um, a temptation, an actor's temptation is when you know something works is to try and hit that bullseye in the same way again. Guaranteed not to, <laughs> I would say, whether it's a second take or a second performance or a third take or a third performance or a 50th performance or a 50th take as I hear happens if you work with David Fincher. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done 50 takes of anything. But. Well, I thought uh, there were some songs in I Saw the Light. You did a lot of... Uh, is that different when it's a song? Oh, took... yeah, yeah. On, when we were in the studio, yes, yes I yes. did. Yeah. I did this. Yeah, we'll, we'll, many we'll come takes. to that, yeah. Um, but he is wise enough to know that you have to clean the slate, wipe the page blank, and go back out there and see what you find. And so it never felt like the same game of tennis with him. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So in that year, you worked with him radio, television, theater, theater. and now came... 
the film opportunity. And yeah. this is also, I mean, I, I guess if there are incremental levels of a career taking off, Thor would be the explosion for you, right? No, well, no question, in a way. It was um, the biggest opportunity of my life to suddenly go to a $150 million film of that size. Although there are no guarantees, you know, there are no guarantees in this business and we still had a big mountain to climb together. Were you surprised that he was even interested in directing a Marvel Universe film? It seems like people assume, I guess, that the man of the theater, Kenneth Branagh, you know, there's that it would be perhaps, uh, and, and, and I'm sure they would say, you know, for, there's sort of until recently this assumption that uh, a lot of assumptions have been overturned recently that a movie star would do television. That, uh, but the idea that a Shakespearean person like Branagh or yourself would mm. would be a part of the Marvel universe did that does that uh, or of a comic book movie was that even a thought? Well, you know, I think actually, I don't think actors actually impose these limitations no. on themselves. <laughs> I think I think it's perception. Is that you know you get to know people doing one thing and then it's surprising when they do something else, but. You know, Denzel Washington was in Much Ado About Nothing, and he's also a huge movie star. But no one thinks of Denzel Washington as a Shakespearean actor, Mm -hmm. and yet he is. Mm -hmm. And so I think these boundaries are much more fluid than perhaps people tend to conceive. I wasn't surprised because by the time it was announced that that, um, Ken Branagh was going to direct Thor, I knew his enormous appetite for, you know, popular entertainment. He and his wife, every weekend, go to the pictures and they'll see everything because they love it. And, you know, there's room for cheeseburgers and sushi (laughs) in our world. (laughs) Right. And actually, interestingly enough, we both, we were shooting Wallander in southern Sweden in uh, Ustad, the town of Ustad in Skiona. (laughs) And we were shooting the denouement of episode three, which happens at a train station in the first season. And I had spent the weekend in Malmo, the nearby town, going to see the first Iron Man, which I had heard was fantastic. And that that was a surprise to everybody, which, of course, gets the sort of history gets rewritten and it seems like a fait accompli. Mm -hmm. But at the time, there was this collective surprise by the industry that this Iron Man film is really (laughs) rather good. And thus, the, you know, the movie business was changed in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had both been discussing how much fun it was watching Iron Man, or I had seen it, he hadn't yet. And I was asking him about Robert Downey Jr. They had made a film together, a Robert Altman film called The Gingerbread Man. Mm. So it didn't surprise me, really, that Ken wanted to do it, because Marvel were... There was something very exciting going on over there, and they seemed like they were on the fringes of the movie business mm-hmm. at that time, but that they were doing exciting things. Mm-hmm. By the way, getting that job wasn't easy. Well, that's what I've <laughs> got to ask you, because I understand there was quite yeah. a evolution from what you originally thought you were even going in for. And yeah. So I guess to begin with, you know, Branagh says to you, I'm doing this, I want you to come out for it or audition? or He, what? he never even said that, yep. actually. I knew he was directing it. I was thrilled for him. And it wasn't until months and months later that actually I got an official note from my agents. You know, it was like every other audition. I was in L.A. doing pilot season. Mm -hmm. And I was auditioning for big movies and small movies and TV. And the Thor note came through just like every other audition. They were like, you know, there are three or four a day. And I was thinking, oh, my God, wow. Well, I knew about this, but I didn't know that I had a shot. And this was to come in and play Thor. Well, it was the pages, the audition pages, were very open. The character I read on the page in the audition didn't exist in the film. They were keeping their powder dry. They were keeping everything, all their cards close. They were very general scenes. But my audition scene was between two brothers. I didn't know which brother I might be playing. And then there were sort of silent camera tests. It was about responding to imaginary situations. And I remember thinking, as I went in for the audition, it, Ken was there. Mm. And I thought, I'd done some other big auditions. And I was like, well, I'm just going to go for it because Ken knows what I can do. And and so there was a some percentage more confidence, perhaps, that I had because I was with someone I knew very well. Mm. And the audition went very well. And then it was announced a week later that I was one of six actors that they wanted to screen test for the character of Thor. And they were going to do this in six weeks' time, and that I should get to the gym. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All the actors they were looking at were all sort of six foot two, 
and blonde, but none of them had a previous association. That there was this Kevin Feige had said to Kenneth Branagh that they wanted to look for an actor who didn't have an association with another character. So there had been rumors of Brad Pitt and rumors of Daniel Craig and other people who would have been brilliant, mm-hmm. but that Kevin wanted to he wanted to find someone who would be only recognizable as Thor. And um, actually, I mean, all those actors have gone on to have wonderful careers, So, and, and it's all in the public domain. So mm-hmm. they were Alexander Skarsgård, uh, Charlie Hunnam, Liam Hemsworth, and Joel Kinnaman. Wow, great group. Yeah. yeah. Noticeably absent from that list is another man by the name of Hemsworth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we all did this. Uh, right. We all screen tested, and none of us got the job. And uh, it all turned out perfectly because in that thing of I think you know they were looking for someone who just had something extra who had a who had a, an innate characteristic that came in the shape of Chris Hemsworth in the end that that um, he is immaculate in that role he has taken possession of it as you have with Loki but that actually came from the screen test itself so yeah. I auditioned with a blonde wig on. But somewhere in that performance, Kevin Feige saw something he thought was interesting for Loki, which I can't sort of account for in a way, but that's just... I mean, it all turned out the way it was supposed to, yeah. So this movie comes out, I believe, within the same week as Midnight in Paris, which I don't know if that came about as a result of... Thor, or if it was a separate total laden, completely. So I guarantee you, Woody Allen probably had has no, not seen Thor. <laughs> has not seen Thor, and right. at the time of casting, me had no interest right. in seeing it. Maybe, and um, you were just for the record, so people remember F. Scott Fitzgerald. In yes, that. I was. Yeah, but that week, what do you remember of that when these two movies both hit? One of them goes on to be a huge blockbuster. The other one goes on to get a Best Picture Oscar nomination and was quite a blockbuster in its own art house sense. How did that week change things for you on a personal level in terms of just suddenly you're a lot more famous, I would imagine, and then also on a professional level in terms of what became available to do afterwards? Well, the interesting thing was I already knew it was the opening May weekend of 2011. And Midnight in Paris had opened the Cannes Film Festival, but I wasn't there. And I already knew that I was, as soon as... I finished the press tour for Thor. I was due in Albuquerque in New Mexico to start Avengers, ah, which I had read. Right. And I had read the extraordinary part that Joss Whedon had written for me. So that was the thing I was going to do. But I remember I had a break, and I was in L.A., and I hadn't seen Midnight in Paris. And I was staying on the West Coast in Santa Monica in mm-hmm. Venice. And I went to the Lemley, wherever it is on Second Street or mm-hmm. something, to see Midnight in Paris because I hadn't seen right, it. Right, right. And that's when I knew things had changed because I bought a ticket and it was on its second weekend, I think, or third weekend maybe. And the woman behind the box office ticket desk sort of had a bit of a freak out, <laughs> <laughs> which I was very flattered, but she was very sweet. Right, right. And then I was waiting to go in for the mid-afternoon showing or something, you know, four o'clock, five o'clock. And the audience from the previous showing were filing out. And the first person I remember to walk out was Billy Crystal. <laughs> and I remember seeing Billy Crystal. I think I'm, I thought to myself, my goodness, that's Billy Crystal. I've been a huge fan of his. <laughs> City Slickers was one of the big movies I was, you know, when I was right. a kid in the 80s. And trying to be deferential, I tried not to look him in the eye and <laughs> let him walk past. And then he collared me <laughs> and said... Did I just see you in that movie? Right. This is a great movie. <laughs> you know, and then I sat in this sold-out audience and watched this film I was in. It was very surreal. Yeah. But it was a happy, very happy time. And let's note that that was followed very soon after. And again, I, I'll have to ask you if it was a direct result of that kind of quick boom with those things. But Deep Blue Sea, I loved you with Rachel Weisz in that. And that was, a, I think, underappreciated, underseen when it came out. Warhorse getting to work with Spielberg. This is all 2011, and several others. Were those, in your sense, the result of those other two, Thor and Midnight in Paris? There was a strange thing. So I made all four of those films in 2010. It's an extraordinary year of my life, really. I don't think I'll ever make four films in a year ever again. I don't know that it's possible. <laughs> you it's, were younger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I really spent almost the entire year on set, 
There was a strange momentum, I suppose. Again, it's very hard retrospectively to explain why that was the case. I auditioned for War Horse and I auditioned for The Deep Blue Sea. And I know that those roles were, you know, were very competitive and I had to tape myself and, and I had to meet both Spielberg and uh, Terence Davis. But somehow maybe as a result of the experience of Thor and that I felt that those would I felt more confident somehow yeah. in those auditions perhaps around that time my audition technique was essentially to learn the entire role off by heart before going in wow. to sort of make there be no other choice in the matter right, right. <laughs> but also it reinforced my own investment in the character so even if they asked me to read one scene because I'd learned the entire role I had done more work on the character so that some maybe the performance was better I don't know but yeah, a very special time. I loved making War Horse. I loved it. It's a very happy memory because I, I, I learned how to ride, especially for the role. I started actually here in L.A. riding horses in Simi Valley, just up in north of... Yeah, yeah, north you of and Ronald Reagan, that's where... That's where right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but the first time I galloped, I galloped up and down a dried-up riverbed and it felt like flying. And then I went back and trained with um, Steve Dent's farm outside London with um, the best in the business, basically, you know, mm-hmm. the best horseman in the game. There's a man called Rob Inch, who is a stuntman. He actually was Antonio Banderas's double, I think, for Zorro. You know, he does, he's the one who yeah. jumps from the top of the building and lands on yeah, the horse. Yeah. And Rob is, is so skilled with horses, and, and he and I and Benedict Cumberbatch and Patrick Kennedy and Jeremy Irvine spent six weeks learning how to ride like cavalrymen and then working with Spielberg yeah what's that like he was a true gentleman and the section of the film that I was in I know he loved making because for him it was an homage to the films of David Lean that he loved you know there are cavalry charges in in those films and watching him put shots together and sequences together it's he's a he's a master truly a master watching him work with Janusz Kaminski and his camera operator Mitch Dubin was um, dazzling honestly just the, the way he put that cavalry charge together the decisions the, the speed and ease of his decision making is, um, is something I'd never seen before so now that I think about it it was actually you were part of two of the Best Picture nominees of that year, right? So those the same year as Midnight in Paris. That's not right. a bad yeah, yeah. Uh, way to break <laughs> in. But I want to come to this really crazy year of 2016, which I know for you is right now probably like being in a tornado because it's all <laughs> hitting at the same time, right? Yeah, it's the best kind of tornado, I yeah, guess. Yeah, not a bad one, right? <laughs> so the first thing, I guess, technically was last year because that's where I saw it at the Toronto International Film Festival. Mm. And that is, I saw the light in which you play the iconic American country singer, Hank Williams. And I want to ask you how that one, which I think is as great as I've ever seen you be, I think it was just such a difficult thing for anyone, but especially probably somebody from outside of America who country music is a, I don't know if it's heard at all in England, but you know, to step into that, how did that come about? And was that as daunting as I would imagine it would be? Well, first of all, thank you, sir. Thank you, Scott, for saying that. I loved, I loved making it. And yes, it was terrifying in a motivating way. The original conversation actually came about because Mark Abraham had seen War Horse. He was watching it with his wife. And uh, I think in the scene where Captain Nichols is, is buying Joey the War Horse for the first time, I take my hat off and Mark turned to his wife and said, that guy looks like Hank Williams. <laughs> and uh, his wife said, does everything have to be about Hank Williams? Can we, can we just watch this movie? Right, right, right. <laughs> and then, you know, he went and watched the other films I'd made. He watched The Deep Blue Sea and then he sent me the script. And I think it was The Deep Blue Sea that, that really swung it, actually, because The Deep Blue Sea is about the pain created by love lost in an intimate relationship. And that was really the film he wanted to make, was, was that... His supposition was that Hank Williams, the genius of Hank Williams' songwriting, songs like Your Cheatin' Heart, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, Cold, Cold Heart, Why Don't You Love Me, the lyrics came from a very authentic place in his own life and in his own marriage. So he had drawn together the tempestuous marriage between Hank and Audrey, 
as two young people who were impetuous and ambitious in their 20s with the legacy of this extraordinary music. Because he, we should know, died when he was three years younger than you are now. He died when he was 29. 29. Yeah, I'm 35. Wow, wow, wow. So, yeah, it's amazing to think about it. And suddenly that became appealing when he, he sort of explained, because I thought, hang on, Hank Williams, this is hallowed ground, this is sacred territory. How could I possibly begin to conceive of myself in that environment? But he was always adamant he wanted to cast an actor who would sing, not a singer who, who could act. Mm-hmm because he wanted to examine the tension between his exterior charisma and his interior vulnerability, and also a portrait of an artist as a young man and a portrait of a marriage. And, you know, it's interesting, he talked about... And he would never arrogate himself to sharing the rarefied air of these people, but he talked a lot about uh, Bob Fosse, Mike Nichols and Martin Scorsese. As he talked about with Fosse, it was all that jazz and Lenny and the sort of very sophisticated and adult way Fosse depicts those relationships in those films. Mike Nichols in uh, his Burton and, and Elizabeth Taylor in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, that they love each other, but they shout at each other and all that stuff. It's so good, that film, and mm. we watched it together. And also the relationship between Robert De Niro and Kathy Moriarty in, in Raging Bull is that, you know, you think about Raging Bull and you think, well, it's about Jake LaMotta and it's about boxing, but it's also about a young man and a young woman fighting in kitchens, you know, fight, like, you know, all those scenes with Joe Pesci when, the, you know, the, the baby's in the room and right. they're, they're torturing. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? There's a, he wanted to have a flavor of that to it. Now... Whether or not we succeeded is not for me to say, but that was the territory we wanted to head into. And you couldn't have done much more to prepare yourself for your part in this, right? I mean, let's just note from the physical aspect of it, because I guess he was a pretty gaunt guy. What did that require? Well, I'm always careful about talking about this because I think there has been occasionally too great an emphasis on weight loss or weight gain Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in acting. I respect it hugely, but I, I think that's only... I think... I, basically, I knew I had an obligation to look like him, and so I did have to lose a bit of weight, but I tried to do it in the healthiest way imaginable. I ran a bit more, and I ate a bit less. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was that easy for, for the rest of us. It, it, but it, by the way, it's not. It's, no. It wasn't easy for me. No, I'm teasing, um, yeah. But, but um, yeah, I think there's a. It's very, you have to be very careful because I I've never wanted to risk my own health in representing the ill health of another character. But it, you know, it was challenging, especially towards the scenes towards the end. We actually started with, so I felt more frail mm-hmm. in sort of in that incarnation than I ever have. But it was followed very quickly by the shooting of the musical stuff. But I needed energy in yeah. a handful. Yeah. So it's like I did the stuff towards the end where Hank is really sick and he's dying, where apparently in real life he was only eating a plate of a couple of eggs once every three days. Jeez. And the rest he was on these awful prescription drugs. Which is why, I think, if his heart did stop in the back of that car and he had a heart attack, it's because he was on those drugs and he wasn't eating. His yeah. heart just gave out. Yeah. Then I started playing the music and I was doing lovesick blues in the morning and why don't you love me in the afternoon and then the next day move it on over in the morning and you're cheating heart in the afternoon. And if you're going to perform those songs for 16 hours a day, you need energy. So (laughs) I had a big stake and then I was on a whole different plan. People should understand though, because this isn't always the case, you did do your own singing, which is a major thing here. And that required, in order to be done well, at least the period of time that you were in Nashville. Now, can you talk about what went down there, which I have enjoyed reading about, because there is a even just a chord of progression that these country songs of the classic era had that is not easy to nail. And certainly mm. when you're doing, you know, yodeling, which was a yeah. big, that's its own art form. Yeah. So for you, what was Nashville all about? Nashville was about getting out of my comfort zone and getting into Hank's comfort zone. And the distance between them was vast, (laughs) unimaginably vast. (laughs) So I went to Nashville six weeks out of principal photography and I lived with Rodney Crowell, who was our executive music producer and my tutor in the ways of the Grammy winning games. Yeah. You know, steeped in this music, saw Hank on his dad's shoulders at the age of two, was married himself to Roseanne Cash for many, many years. 
this music is in his blood. And it was the simultaneously the most fulfilling, the most terrifying, and the most challenging creative experience of my life because I knew I had to sound like Hank. I also had to transmit the power of the songs. That had to be authentic, it had to be honest. The music had to rock because the music does rock. And I was in his territory. You know, I was, I was surrounded by musicians who revered this man. So I had to roll my sleeves up and, you know, <laughs> basically get to work, which meant that I didn't do anything else. I just, <laughs> the people who emailed me, people who tried to call me on the phone, did not get a response mm-hmm. at that time. You know, I, I was completely myopic and obsessive. But it was wonderful too. And Rodney and I got to know each other very well. It was almost like learning how to ride a bicycle again. You know, when you run how to ride a bicycle, it's terrifying because you think, how is it possible not to fall off that thing? And you start with stabilizers and then eventually you get more confident and then you take the stabilizers off and then you're riding a bicycle. And the joy you feel that you're doing it is similar to the joy. I, at first I looked at this music. I looked at the way Hank yodeled. I, looked, I listened to his pitch. I listened to his vocal rebelliousness and vocal control. And I knew I didn't have it. And I had to practice it, like, you know, practice, practice, practice like anything. But by the time I cracked it, it was so thrilling to sing a song like Love Sick Blues, which famously his manager and music publisher Fred Rose didn't like, you know, and, <laughs> and, his, and, and the Drifting Cowboys didn't like it. You know, it's out of meter. Hank holds on to the notes for too long. And musically, it doesn't make any sense. It was his first number one billboard hit and became his signature. Every time he played it live, he'd say, here's a little song I've sang 13 million one half times. It's bought us quite a few beans and biscuits. <laughs> um, That's great. You know, That's it became great. his thing. It became mm-hmm. his calling card. And it's not an easy song at all. And the great thing about Rodney was he was like, he knew it was hard. You know, it's easy to look back on it now, but there were moments which were, you know, you think you've got a short time to get this right. And we'd have days where we'd go to bed dissatisfied and unsure that in bashing our heads against this brick wall, we were ever going to make it through on the other side. And I would say, Rodney, why, why did I, do, why did I decide to do this? And he'd say, because you got more guts and sense, Tommy. <laughs> You know, those creative experiences are the stuff that you treasure forever. Sure. You know, it will be bonded for life. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, the last pre-Night Manager thing I have to ask you is, why do you think it is, after really immersing yourself in Hank Williams' story, that so many creative artists, musical or otherwise, are such tortured souls as he certainly was? I mean, this film reminds people, if they need a reminder, that these tragically premature deaths didn't start with Amy Winehouse or even with Janis Joplin mm-hmm. or however many others, particularly from the music world. So can you understand why it happens and what the difference is between those who are sort of irrevocably affected by it and the rest of you? Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? And I think it's something I don't think I can put my finger on succinctly in, in the time that we have. Uh, by the way, for listeners out there, we're sitting in a room and I'm sitting in front of a Hollywood Reporter cover of Mick Jagger, <laughs> who looks still like the coolest man in the world. Right. And he's still going, yep. you know? And he and Keith, have, you know, they haven't shied away from living an interesting life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, they, they're still the Rolling Stones and they're still with us. So is there some sort of spiritual equation? I don't know. And there seems to be this harrowing truth that there are a number of artists musical artists who have given the world an extraordinary legacy and then have left us. And I can't explain it. I do think perhaps it's true that... It's true of Hank that he he didn't have a safety catch. He just indulged himself and indulged his appetites. He didn't... You know, he had a terrible problem with alcohol. That's documented, which led to a problem with these prescription drugs. And maybe it's a fact of his youth and that he was somehow suggestible and vulnerable to the wrong kind of influence. You know, there's this man called Toby Marshall who bought his medical degree from a gas station for $25 who turned up and said, I can help you with your problem. 
and he he prescribed these things called Mickey fins, which contained chloral hydrate, which was a chemical they used to sedate circus animals. And there are some people whose constitutions are not strong enough to take this kind of punishment. And they're also in the, the bright burning heat of the limelight with a lot of people who want, you know, to capitalize on their stardom. Anyway, Hank was there. And so, truthfully, I don't know. I think they just, I've always said it's like, it felt to me as I played him, like Hank was one of those artists who walks to the edge of the cliff and stands on the precipice and looks down and isn't frightened of the fall. And there are some people, creative people, who exist at that pitch of intensity and others step back. They have something in them which says, this is high, step back, you know, I'll stop drinking, I will reorganise the parameters of my life so that it's safer. I don't know. Oh. It's a, I could, I, I'm not an expert on it, but it is something that is interesting, certainly. Sure. All right, so now we got to talk about what is really taking America by storm, having already done that in the UK, and that is this great six-part miniseries, The Night Manager, on AMC. If people haven't seen it yet, they can still catch up on the AMC website or via iTunes. But this is a John LeCrae adaptation, and it's one that is very engrossing. It's, I think, it's a total of six hours. And so mm. for you... How did you first hear about it, and is it like anything you've done before? Second question first, no, <laughs> <laughs> which is why it was appealing. It came to me through my British agent who works in London, and I was in Toronto making Crimson Peak for Guillermo del Toro uh -huh. in 2014, almost exactly two years ago, and he sent me an email, and in the subject box it simply said, it's you, <laughs> and the attachment was the first episode of The Night Manager. And I was busy, you know, filming at the time, but it was a very tightly constructed 60-page document. And I read it in about half an hour, and it was brilliant. It was just the most compelling piece of writing. David Farr, the screenwriter, had managed to compress, I suppose, the opening 100 pages of Le Carre's novel, or less, but without losing any of the sophistication of it. I hadn't read the novel at the time, but I, it was immediately engrossing. It was contemporary, politically resonant, and deeply thrilling. That He was clearly an espionage drama which played out like a kind of cat and mouse thriller. And Jonathan Pine was the most captivating prospect. He was my age, he had a elegant and diplomatic exterior, and, and behind that there was this, he was on fire. <laughs> on fire with moral anger, courage, his own emotional damage as a soldier in the British Army. And I just jumped at it. I said, how do we get this made? And I believe that all the episodes are directed by Susanna Beer. They are. All and them, yeah. people, you know, again, contextually, Danish Oscar winner. She's very interesting, but I don't know how much she's done outside of Denmark prior to now, so this was like a big thing for her as well. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder for you what your experience was of, of working with her on what would be a much longer collaboration, I would guess, than most others that you've had with directors. Yeah. It, strangely enough, it felt like a film. We shot 360 pages in 75 days, and some of the features I've made have been as long as that, if not longer. And we conceived of it as one enclosed narrative we boarded it in the schedule like that so we never we didn't shoot it episodically we shot it you know on a Tuesday morning we'd be doing episode scene from episode two and then a scene from episode five oh in the afternoon <laughs> so that how do you even keep track yeah the, yeah. the vigilance required on, oh. on both of it especially because I play a character who goes under four different names and has four different passports it was a, it was a lot of uh, kind of a lot of headwork for me and Susanna, keeping track of where we were. But um, she's extraordinary. You know, I urge people to go out and watch her other films. She won an Oscar for a film called In a Better World, which is about, I think, the curse of humankind in our world, which is, you know, about sort of we, keep, we just keep picking fights with each other. And she stages that very delicately. And then she did another film recently with Nikolai Costa-Waldau called A Second Chance, which is in Danish, but it's beautiful. She, she's worked in the English language before. She did a film called Things We Lost in the Fire. Yeah, with, Halle Berry. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And a film with Pierce Brosnan as well. 
But she, as a director, has an extraordinary rigor about reality. You know, she won't let anything through the lens of the camera which she doesn't believe is real or representative of real life, whether that's the way a fight is staged, the way a scene between people who like each other is played or a scene between people who don't like each other, a scene of conflict, a scene of intimacy. She just chases the truth and won't let go, and that rigor is rare when you're up against a schedule like that. So it was thrilling because she had a respect for Le Carre, actually a deep love for it and his writing and wanted to honour Le Carre and the original source material, but she also had her own artistic fingerprint and she trusted that and was rebellious enough with it to say, well, I know Le Carre wrote this, but he wrote it in 1993 and it's 2015 and this is what we're shooting today and this is what I think. And that authority is what you need in these kinds of engagements. Now your co-star in this is Hugh Laurie who is playing Roper but who apparently at one time in the way that he phrased it before he lost a little bit of hair and got a little older or whatever he's been very self-deprecating about it was interested in playing Jonathan Pine. Yeah. He is obviously somebody with a lot of experience in television not that this probably felt like television, as you say, it probably felt more like a film, but I just wonder what you made of the experience of, again, spending an extended period of time with him. Well, Hugh Laurie is an incredible actor, and uh, I can't say enough good things about him, to be honest. He's loved this this novel. He loved The Night Manager when it came out, and he tried to option it, which is, in his own words, he says... I don't know anything about optioning. I don't even know what that is, but I wanted to do what I could to bring it to the screen. But he was told that he couldn't, that actually the rights were owned by Sidney Pollack and that uh, Robert Town had written a screenplay, that it was being developed as a feature and had stayed in development for a long time and never materialised. And then I think it was a project at Plan B with Brad Pitt for a bit. And then they, obviously the rights reverted to Le Carre and, and finally they were available. And in Hugh's words, yes, hair falls out and knees get creaky. <laughs> so I have the hubris to step into those boots that he wished he had. But honestly, to have his passion and investment, as you know, he was, he was so generous to me from the get-go. And Richard Roper, you know, he plays the villain. Not the film critic. The, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he plays the character of Richard Roper, who is an international arms dealer who sells standard and chemical weapons to the highest bidder in the Middle East and is an incarnation of cynicism in Le Carre's mind. He is, he is the worst man in the world. And that's a direct quote from the novel. And the reason he earns that moniker is because he is someone who has been deeply blessed born into privilege and British citizenship and that he has abused those freedoms and privileges to do the worst things imaginable and has divorced himself from the victims of the violence from which he profits. And casting Hugh is a stroke of genius because Hugh is so charming (laughs) and so intelligent and so affable and so as an audience member you like him so much. And that creates a duality in your sympathies that he's billed as the worst man in the world, but he's so seductive. And Le Carre's provocation is that that he's presenting paradise, but there is a serpent in paradise, or paradise has has been built on blood. And that is the tension, really. But to have Hughes... um, I mean, Richard Roper's not in every scene, whereas Jonathan Pine, the night manager, my character very Mm -hmm. much is... And Hugh would be on set anyway, because he wanted to be, because he loved it so much. And he'd just, he'd get excited. And he would defend things, and he would defend, he was a great champion of of Le Carre. And Susanna and I discussed often how, you know, Hugh Laurie's lived with this material for 25 years. So it's been sitting in the back of his mind. And so he had these, I think, very special insights about it, which were, Invaluable. I couldn't have done it without him. I know that you have been bombarded with a certain question that is probably annoying as hell at this point, but I think there's a slightly relevant reason to bring it up 
in the context of Night Manager. And the question, obviously, you have been rumored to be in the mix as perhaps the next James Bond if and when Daniel Craig moves on. Now, that in itself is neither here nor there. But James Bond is not entirely dissimilar from Jonathan Pine. And I believe that that was something that you and Susanna acknowledged and then sort of dissected. Is that correct? We did, yeah. I, we, we sort of had to because the comparisons were, were obvious in a way. I'm playing a former British soldier who becomes an agent for MI6 who does some very bad things for the greater good. Like Slovakia Martini, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. And, of course, I'm playing a spy, and I'm playing a British spy, and the world that that spy occupies is very seductive. So we had to look at it. But I do think they are different characters. There's something very true to Le Carre about Jonathan Pine, which is that he's broken and he's damaged. He's he's also very much at the beginning of his journey. You know, he's someone who... James Bond has a license to kill and has been doing it for a long time. Jonathan Pine is really just starting. It's his first experience of being a field agent. I also think that uh, <laughs> Jonathan Pine is moderately better at concealing his identity <laughs> than James Bond. You know, right. James Bond is James Bond. He doesn't give a shit if anyone <laughs> recognises him as James Bond. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, I understand where the comparisons come from, and they're enormously flattering. But, uh, you know, I don't think the position is vacant. <laughs> truthfully. <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you, it was very funny when we had... Idris Elba here doing this podcast not that long ago, and there had just been the Academy's Governor's Awards that give out their honorary Oscars, you know? And I guess he'd gone to the bar to order a drink, and who was there but Daniel Craig? Really? And Daniel Craig, and you know, he's been dealing with the same yeah, yeah. shit that you have about every everywhere you go, you're asked. And uh, I think Daniel Craig, he said, didn't say a word, just looked at him, Game over, gave him a kiss on the cheek and like patted him and walked away. He's like, you know, <laughs> good luck to you. This right. is, you know, be careful what you wish for. I right. think was the yeah, idea. Yeah. But anyway, I the, don't know. You it, know, I've actually I met Daniel. I uh, met him when I was working with Rachel Weiss, and he was incredibly nice and erudite and generous. It was just before Christmas as we were finishing the Deep Blue Sea. Anyway, he's James Bond. And until further notice, there is no other. (laughs) Well, so here's the last question. Sort of the State of the Union for Tom Hiddleston. We have Skull Island coming, I think, later this year. First big blockbuster that you are the sole lead of, I think. Is that fair to say? I'm I'm, one of the leading characters. One of the leading characters. Um, It's, uh, yes, Kong, Skull Island, and I suppose there are lots of different characters in it. But, yeah, I play the... And before you divulge anything further, we then also have in 2017, I believe, the next... Thor, Thor 3, maybe, unfortunately, the last I've heard. I couldn't possibly comment. Couldn't say. Yeah, yeah. And then, obviously, right now, as we've said, High Rise, Night Manager, Saw the Light. And so I just wonder for you, I mean, it's gotten to the point in just five years since that breakthrough year with Thor and Midnight in Paris, although, obviously, a lot more work beyond that. But in five years, there are enough people who are admirers of your work that they have their own nicknames at this point, I believe, Hiddlestoners. And that in itself is just a reflection of the fact that it's being seen, it's being appreciated. And so I just wonder what you make of it all at this particular moment in time so that when five years from now or whatever, we come back and listen to this, we have a little time capsule of where your mind is right now. That's a lovely question. Thanks, man. I was thinking about this yesterday. I, I just feel so... I feel so lucky because I've always wanted to be in different kinds of things, to play different kinds of roles. And my taste is, is so broad, actually, as an audience member, you know? I came to this business from the audience. I, I'm still in that audience, and I love watching movies as much as anyone else. And I still get moved by them and frustrated by them <laughs> and, um, and, and passionate about them. And the actors I'd always admired were the ones who had surprised everybody with their choices and been brave enough to do different things. And I wanted to try to do lots of different things myself, to never be in one box, to never be just, you know, stuck in one lane. And I feel like I've been allowed to do that. And that is a source of it. I feel so grateful for that. That's how I feel right now, is I feel I just feel like I'm... 
I'm not quite sure what's next apart from those things that you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I have some big dreams and some big plans. We'll see if they come true. I still feel like I'm just beginning. I don't know if that feeling ever goes away. When I work with Judy Dench, sorry to just clunk her name in, in between. <laughs> yeah, anytime <laughs> but, you can, you got it. I worked with her very briefly on a, on a television series called Cranford on the BBC mm-hmm. a few years ago. And she feels like that. She feels like she's just beginning and that there's always more to play for. There's, you know, you're never quite sure whether it's over. Or... So I think that's the, that's the exciting thing is that I've done some good work but I still, there's still so much more to do. And I'm excited by how that takes shape, honestly. I'm excited by um, the chances I get and the challenges I'll face. You know, I spoke about bashing my head through a brick wall with Roderick Rodney Crowell and Hank Williams. I'm sure there are many more brick walls and many more bruises on, the, on my forehead. But um, I'm excited to see what's coming down, yeah. Me too. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. That was lovely. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.